my, my aim in those overview messages have really been this banner on the screen here. Jesus is better, so press on. The first week I, I pulled out the, uh, the themes in the Scriptures, and uh, last week I just quoted through the whole book, as Phil alluded to. Because the book of Hebrews is, is a sermon, I believe. It is something which is, uh, uh, caps our attention. It is applicable. It is um, uh, hortatory, which means it's filled with exhortations, and it's helpful to us in that way. It's been written down for us, contained in the, in the Bible for us to study. And so this morning we're going to begin our, our detailed exposition of this book. I'm going to examine the parts that make up the whole. So I direct your attention to chapter 1. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning. And as is the case in uh, almost every book of the Bible, the very first sets of words really set the, the course and the direction of the entire book And that's what takes place this morning. This morning we're going to see really the first half of the theme of the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is better. The writer's going to just show us of how much better Jesus is. He has a better revelation. He has a better person. He has a better position. And thus the result of that is that then we need to press on. So the text this morning is just building this first argument about how Jesus is better The reason why he starts this way is because there were those who weren't pressing on. There were those who weren't running on to Jesus. There were those who were falling away, who were drifting away, who weren't continuing on. And and the writer is saying, no, you need to press on. You need to continue on because Jesus is so much better than than anything you you could ever have or want. There were these people, particularly in in the First Testament first century church to whom this was written, who, who came out of the Jewish rituals, who came out of the priestly sacrifices, who, who heard from prophets, who went to the temple, who went to Jerusalem, who had the feasts and the festivals, and then they came to see that Jesus is the end of the law. It's to which the law points. And they, they began to come into the church and think about it, but they were in danger of going back to these things. And the writer says, no, 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 Jesus is better. Don't go back to those things. Don't return. Jesus is better. So let's look. I want to read our first three verses this morning, which is our text. And as I read, I want you to listen to the ways in which it points about how Jesus is better. Um, Really then, the rest of our time is just going to be an opportunity for us to to look at how Jesus is better, which is the title of my message this morning. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That speaks in verse 4, which we'll look at next week having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. In these verses, the writer puts forth two ways in which Jesus is better. First of all, Jesus has a better revelation. That's your first point there. Jesus has a better revelation. That's the point of verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. That the revelation of Jesus Christ is better than the revelation of the Old Testament. Because it's the fulfillment 
of the Old Testament. By revelation, I simply mean the process by which God has made Himself known. If you look here in the text, there are twice that it speaks about God speaking. If you look there in verse 1, it says, God, after He spoke. So He spoke. In verse 2, it says, in these last days, He has spoken to us. God speaks so as to make Himself known. God spoke in the former days, and now God has spoken in the last days. And the way in which God has spoken to us in these last days is different, first of all, but it's also better. In the past, God spoke to the fathers. But these last days, He's spoken to us. In the past, He spoke in many different ways. And using many different methods, as it says there in verse 1. But in these last days, He's spoken to us in one way. That's in Jesus. In the past, He spoke through prophets. These last days, He's spoken to us in one who's better than the prophets. He's spoken to us in His Son. The contrast between what God did in the past and what God has done in these last days only serves to show that His revelation is better, which is my point. I mean, that's, that's exactly what the writer is trying to do, first of all. He, he, he's trying to show that these Jewish people don't be content with just the Old Testament, realize that the revelation that God has given us in His Son is way better than all those things. The, the Old Testament is not denying as bad, it is good. Isaiah 42, verse 21, calls the law great. It calls the law glorious. But what He has revealed now in His Son is even more glorious. Now before we actually dig into the contrast, which is what we're going to do to pick apart verses 1 and 2, um, I, I want for us to really linger here for a few moments and just marvel that God has given us a revelation at all. And this is the first note the book of Hebrews strikes, that God has revealed Himself. It was not necessary at all that God would reveal Himself to us. He was under no constraint outside of Himself to tell us about what He is like. He could very easily have created the world and then walked away only to observe how that world would work itself out. He could have been like the lab technician which takes the Petri disc and puts the sample on it, goes away and looks at it after 48 hours and looks at it after 72 hours to see if the bacteria has multiplied. God could have done that with the world, but He didn't. Now, there are many who think that He did. These are called deists. They don't deny the reality of God, but they deny the reality of the self-disclosure of God. That is, that God has spoken to us and revealed Himself to us. Many of the founders of our country were deists, like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. They did not believe that God has, has spoken. You know, and I think that there are, are many who think that. think, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere and that that what we think of Him is up to our own imagination and thoughts and observations. As if we don't need to look to His Bible to find out what He has said about Himself. I think many of us can live like that many times. We put the Bible on the shelf and it collects dust. Then what we're doing, we're just thinking about God from what we know rather than digging into the Bible and say, what is it that God has told us about Him? So we might believe those things. But our God is a speaking God. Apart from God speaking, we would know nothing. But He's spoken so that we can know all these things. Consider the testimony of Scriptures about how God is a speaking God. The very first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did He create the heavens and the earth? He did it by speaking. 
He just said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be an expanse, and there was an expanse. He said, let there be plants, let the earth sprout vegetation, and plants arose. Let there be lights in the heaven, in the expanse of the heavens, right? Let, let, the, let the waters spring forth, let the, let the waters teem with living creatures, right? He just spoke, and the world came into being. Think also how God has spoken to the patriarchs. He spoke to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Genesis 12.1, Go forth from your country to the land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. He spoke to Abraham audibly. Abraham heard him like a physical voice, sound waves, coming from the, the, the voice of God into the ears of Abraham. That's amazing. Isn't it? He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob, reiterating the Abrahamic covenant. He spoke to Moses face to face. He spoke to Joshua, be strong and courageous. He spoke to Samuel, even when a little boy. God spoke to the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jeremiah, Hosea Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and many more. How, how many, think about the prophets. How many times do you hear them say, Thus says the Lord. Every time you read that phrase in the Old Testament, you ought to say, well, that means that God spoke and that through the prophet then God was speaking it out. He's a speaking God. He speaks to us. He tells us what He's like. He tells us what He has done. He tells us what we believe. He tells us what, how we are to behave. We have trouble obeying. God reminds us of what He's done on the cross. And, and we really need to be thankful for His revelation. We aren't those who just grope about in the darkness like the world does. We aren't those who try to develop some system of morality based on our own thoughts and feelings and common sense. No, we are those who base our thoughts and truths on the heart of God. Listen, we pity the child who grows up without parents because they grow up directionless in their life. They have no one to guide them and direct them. Little influence. But apart from God speaking to us, we would be like those children who grow up directionless. But in God speaking, He gives us direction in life. Alright, let's look at verses 1, the first half of verse 2. Having said that about He's speaking, I want to pull the contrast out of there. Because there are four contrasts that he speaks of here. And he pulls up these contrasts by way of, of putting one before the other. So that we might see the Old Testament revelation and we might see the revelation that God has given to us in Jesus and say, okay, which do you want to choose? And we'll say, well, we'll choose Jesus because it's a much better revelation. First of all, there's this contrast between or of when he spoke. The contrast is between long ago, verse 1, and in these last days, verse 2. <clears throat> long ago, that's Old Testament times. For these people, it would have been 2,000 years before that he spoke to Abraham. would have been 1,000 years before they spoke to David. would have been hundreds of years before he spoke to the prophets. That was long ago. But in these last days, would have been right then and there, <clears throat> right in that generation for them when the Messiah came. In fact, that's what the, this phrase, last days, means. When you read the New Testament, they tell that we are in the last days. Ever since Jesus came, we are in the last days. And though it seems like a long time that we've been in the last days, some 2,000 years, we are in the last days. That's what Paul said. Paul wrote to the Corinthians of how the events of the Old Testament written, as he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 
written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He's saying the end of the ages have come upon the New Testament believers. And it's true upon us as well. The end of the ages have come. We're in the last days. James warned his readers of the folly of pursuing riches. He says in James 5.3, It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure for yourselves. And what he's saying this, it's the last days, it's soon to end, and you have, you have just gathered things to yourself. What use is that going to be when Christ comes back? Not very much. Peter spoke of Christ having appeared to us in these last times. 1 Peter 1.20 The coming of Christ, the messianic age being dawned, puts us in the last days, the last times. However long that is. And certainly the original readers of the book knew they were in the last days. Because Messiah had come, and that just picks up the importance of the revelation which comes through the Messiah. That was old, but now has come the revelation in the last days. Well, another contrast. There's a contrast of to whom He spoke. It says in verse 1 that God spoke long ago to the fathers. But in these last days, verse 2, He's spoken to us. Now, there's, there's nothing inherent in that which makes Jesus better, which makes His revelation better that He's spoken to us than to the fathers, because if anything, we might think of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, as better than we are, right? So, we, well, the word He spoke to them maybe is, is better, we might say, or to the prophets. But here's what it is. It is better to us. I mean, think about this, kids. When, when your father or mother speaks to one of your your brothers or sisters, is that important? So David, so your your dad says, Jared, I want you to do, and gives instructions to Jared, I think you listen, right? Okay, but what if he focuses attention upon you and says, David, all of a sudden it heightens in importance, right? When mom and dad address us rather than addressing our children. And so, likewise here, that's why the revelation given through a son is better because it's given right to us. It's given to those of us who live in the messianic days and age. In fact, there is something better about our day and age. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks about how the people had gone before. By, by faith, they conquered kingdoms. By faith, they formed acts of righteousness. By, by faith, they shut the mouths of lions. All these things they did by faith and, and having gained approval through their faith, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Hebrews 11, verse 40. So apart from us, they would not be made perfect because the revelation has come to us is the days and times of Messiah. makes it better. A third contrast in verses 1 and 2. When He spoke, to whom He spoke, and here it is, how He spoke. Long ago, it says God spoke in many portions and in many ways. That just speaks about the different ways that God did things in the Old Testament. But the revelation today is only one way. It's in His Son. The reality of God's revelation in the Old Testament is that it came in many portions. I think it's talking about pieces or meals. It's talking about the different books of the Bible. There are 39 of them. Written by more than 30 different authors. All varying in degree. Some are law. Some are are prophetical, some are historical, some are prophetical, some are wisdom. They're coming in many different ways, in many different manners, many different authors, even different, many portions refer to the different books, many ways describe the different ways in which God communicated. Sometimes it was audibly, so they heard the voice of God in their ears, like Jeremiah when he was called by God, 
God spoke directly to Jeremiah. Sometimes God spoke to them in a dream, like Daniel. He had to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and so God revealed the dream to him so as to be able to know the dream. Sometimes God spoke to them in an angel. Remember Manoah and his wife, the father, the, the, the father and mother of Samson, encountered the angel of God, and they said afterwards, we have seen God and spoke to Him, we're going to die. But God spoke to them in an angel, and even God spoke to Balaam in a donkey. Lots of different ways. God thundered sometimes on Mount Sinai, and yet to Elisha, He spoke in a still, small voice. Different ways, different forms. But the revelation of the Messiah is different. It comes one way. It comes in His Son, in Jesus. See, there's a finality that comes in the revelation of Jesus that simply wasn't true in the days of the Old Testament. I mean, those in the Old Testament time were, were always anticipating and expecting when the Messiah would come. And when is He going to come? And when is He going to come? And it's not quite, not quite complete. When is Elijah going to come? And always looking forward. When is He going to come? In fact, the Jews today are still looking for the Messiah to come. But now it's the days of the Messiah. He's come. He's spoken in His Son. We ought not to expect more further revelation to come. We don't need to go about seeking more because it's complete in Him. We need to realize that God has spoken with finality in one portion, in one way, having spoken to His Son. I think one of the most helpful things I read this week in my study about this text came from John Calvin. He said this. He said, It was great hindrance to the Jews that they did not consider that God had deferred a fuller revelation until another time. Hence, being satisfied with their own law, they did not hasten forward to the goal. In other words, these Jews, right? they, they didn't see when Jesus came. They didn't, they didn't hasten forward towards that, but they, they remained in their Judaism and were delighted in their law and didn't realize that the one to whom the law pointed came. And then he said this, but since Christ has appeared, an opposite evil began to prevail in the world. For men wished to advance beyond Christ. And particularly, if you know John Calvin is right, he's writing the time of the Reformation where, where the Pope and the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was, was evil. And they, it's Catholic Church, and I'm not saying it's not evil today because it binds many people in religion, but, but to them, that was the, the greatest of evil and always, always was. And, and even he said this, he said, What else indeed is the whole system of popery? That is, the Pope. The Catholic system. What is this whole system of popery? But the overleaping of the boundary which the Apostle had fixed. In other words, he says, God has spoken to us in His Son, but what has the Catholic Church done? They've gone beyond that to create priests for themselves. Everything the Old Testament had, they went to Jesus and now they have priests for themselves. They have rituals for themselves. They have sacrifices for themselves. They have days to keep for themselves. Feasts and fastings which they press upon people. And what is the error in that? That they just have gone to Jesus and gone beyond. But the writer here is saying, no, that the revelation has come with finality in His Son and it is set. Oh, let us not go on. A final contrast in verses 1 and 2. When He spoke, to whom He spoke, how He spoke, here is through whom He spoke. And this observation really sets up the rest of the text. In the days of the Old Testament, God spoke in the prophets. Plural. 
prophets, in the prophets, by the prophets, through the prophets. He can translate the Greek preposition in in all those different ways. Prophets were men to whom God revealed Himself, through whom God spoke to the people. But in these last days, God spoke... What's the contrast? In His Son. And the Son is, is put in contrast to the prophets. It could be in His Son, through His Son, by His Son. But the idea here in the contrast is that God has spoken to us personally. See, it's one thing to send a text. It's another thing to send an email. It's another thing to write a note. It's another thing to make a phone call. But in person is the best, most intimate, and most persuasive way to speak. And that's what God has done. Oh, certainly He sent letters through the prophets. And He announced a message to them which came to us. But it was always secondhand. But in His Son, it was not secondhand. It was firsthand. Think of the events of this last week. Um, I think it was a week ago. The International Olympic Committee was trying to decide where to hold the 2016 Olympic Games. And the city of Chicago was one of the four finalists. And in an effort to persuade the Olympic Committee of the worthiness of Chicago, officials spent millions of dollars. Mayor Daley was um, pressing on, trying to get Chicago to have the Olympics, trying to convince them that, that this is where it ought to be. Look, we have all these stadiums all set, and we have the infrastructure, and the, the L travels, and we can make some improvements here, and Chicago is the place, and writing these documents. And then it came this past week in Copenhagen, they were going for the vote. And one of the most, I think, significant efforts that was made was when President Obama himself traveled to Copenhagen to make a pitch for Chicago right in person. And the idea is the same here. He didn't send an email. He didn't write a note. He didn't send Secretary of State. He didn't prepare some documents. He didn't even make a phone call. He didn't appear in video satellite, which he could have done. What did he do? He came in person to make his push. Now, the analogy fails, of course, because the president failed in this to accomplish his efforts. But Jesus didn't fail to accomplish anything that he set out to do. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. He came to visit us. He came to visit us in person. He walked among us. He taught us. In fact, the Apostle John said, We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, we have touched with our hands. The apostles experienced the very presence of God in their midst, touching Jesus, feeling Jesus seeing His emotion, experiencing Him. Jesus revealed Himself in person. In fact, that's how the second half of verse 2 and verse 3 all focus around. They just tell us about the person of Jesus. Describe who He is, what He did, what He does. And all these descriptions just describe who He is. And let me just say that they're all like out of this world. They're beyond what even we can comprehend. I mean, as, as I looked at each of these one by one, there are seven descriptions of Jesus. I, I, I couldn't grasp any of them in their entirety what they mean. I just couldn't. Because they're so, they're so high and lofty and lifted up. But, but at least one of the things that comes out, and I hope it comes out in my message this morning, we'll be able to see how much better Jesus is. He has a better revelation, and secondly, He is a better person. or He, he has a better person. He's a better position. He has a better status. He's a better work. Jesus is better. The writer describes mostly how he's better than the prophets of old. And I hope as we walk through these seven characteristics of Jesus that 
that you might see and be convinced of how Jesus is so much better than anything else you ever might want, you ever might want to have. That Jesus would be the, the joy of your satisfaction. He'd be the light. He said, that's the best. And, and see, it's not that I'm trying to persuade you to drum you over the head and say, obey the law. No, I'm trying to say, look at how sweet Jesus is. And where the heart is willing, you have a desire for God, your feet are going to be swift to run in His ways. It's my aim this morning. We don't have a second-rate Savior. He's better than all the prophets. He's better than all the prophets put together. That's who Jesus is. So let's look here in verse 2. First characteristic, there are seven of them. First characteristic is He is the heir of all things. It says there, whom, referring back to Jesus, whom He appointed heir of all things. That's the implication of Him being a son. It's the implication of being the firstborn son is that He is the heir of all things. It's the Son who's the heir. I mean, the heir is the owner of the house, as opposed to the servant who's merely a steward in the house. In chapter 3, the writer makes this um, differentiation. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things that were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. See, Moses was faithful in his house as steward, as a servant, but Christ was faithful over his house because Christ was the heir. Moses was a laborer, but Jesus is the boss. Moses was an employee, but Jesus is the owner. Moses was a player on the team, but Jesus owned the team. And the extent of the ownership of Jesus reaches far and wide. It says here that He is the heir of all things. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. Jesus owns the world. All things. There's nothing He doesn't own. Here's a question. If He is heir of all things then why would you go to any other place for help? Why don't you go to the one who owns it all? I mean, the prophets were a help in that they were able to direct people back to God is what they did. But the help that Jesus provides is different. The prophets spoke on behalf of God, but Jesus, being God Himself, spoke Himself. He could make promises right there on the spot. You know, I think about a salesman who's trying to sell something and, you know, speaks to somebody in a department somewhere. I remember when I was in the computer world, it happened all the time that I was in charge of purchasing. And they, someone would talk to me and I'd see if they could buy it. And I'd, I'd talk to them and say, okay, this looks good. Let me talk to my boss. And I'd talk to my boss to get financial approval for that. And if it was in the budget, then we'd go forward. Sometimes we went to the VP of Finance. That's how helpful the prophets were, right? They, they maybe represent, they maybe can help. But Jesus is the VP of finance. He's, a, he's the owner of the company. He can say, yeah, that looks good. Go ahead and buy that. And gives him orders and it just takes place. That is the heir. He owns all things. Now the strange thing about this particular phrase is this little word appointed. You thought about this? Jesus was appointed heir of all things. I mean, the implication almost seems that he, he wasn't the heir of all things at one point, and then, then he was or became. Like God had to appoint Jesus something when he, he wasn't. And, and I, I just say that the scriptures, 
don't really support that, the rest of them. That idea, I think probably better, rather than, than pointing here about appointed heir of all things, more, more, more communicated and set forth that what he did in the work, there it proves and shows that he is the heir of all things. It's a little bit like the Philippians 2 passage. Remember that where it speaks about a Jesus, he emptied himself by becoming obedient, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death, death on a cross. And because of his humiliation, it says, therefore God also highly exalted him. It says it's for this reason that God highly exalted him. Now, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't exalted before His incarnation. He was. He prayed in the high priestly prayer. John 17, 5. Glorify Me with the glory that I had with You, Father, before the world was. He had glory before the world was. But there is a way in which His suffering and death and incarnation announce to the world that He indeed is the heir of all things. He is the one who has dominion over all things. In that sense, is appointed heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. He's been appointed the heir of all things. He's been given it all. Second characteristic of Jesus, He's the Creator of the world. It says right there at the end of verse 2, through whom, that's through Jesus, also God made the world. The grammar of this text indicates and shows that it's God the Father who's the Creator of the world. But, but the creation came through means of the Son. The agency of creation in the world is con- consistently used by writers of the New Testament. They, they always say the same thing. It, it's God created, but He did through the means of His Son. John wrote, All things came into being through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. There's nothing in the created world that kind of escaped the creative power and hand of Jesus. As if the Father said, You know what? Step aside, Jesus. I want to make this for Myself. No. It was everything went through the hands of Jesus. Paul wrote, Colossians 2.16. It's Colossians 10. I think my notes are wrong. By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him. See, it's by Jesus all things are created. All things are created through Jesus. Jesus is the agency of creation. So you might say, well, what does that mean? I think the best way to understand this is to think of the days in our country where the first automobiles came to be. When you think of the early automobiles, who comes to mind? Henry Ford. And and what did Henry Ford create? What was the first car? What did he create, Jared? A Model T, exactly. But, But let's think about it. Was Henry Ford the creator of the Model T? Who created... Who made the Model Ts? Is the factory workers on the assembly line. They were the guys making the Model T, but it's Henry Ford who was making them. So you put those two things together, and I think the same parallel exists. It's God who created the world, but who was pulling it off? Jesus was pulling it off. Inner Trinitarian mystery here, for sure. Right? But it shows that Jesus is the creator of the world. He is the creator, and thus He is the true ruler. And puts Him, think about this, He's the creator of the world. It puts Him far beyond all the prophets. None of them created the world. They were merely parts of the world. 
puts the Son as the sovereign one in the universe who owns all things, has dominion over all things. Jesus is better. Now the writer of the Hebrews could easily have stopped right here and his point would have been made. He said, look at God, He's the heir of all things. Jesus is. He's the heir of all things. He made all things. Isn't He better? He'd say, absolutely He's better. But He goes on. He talks about His being. He talks about His essence. He says also, Jesus is, at the beginning of verse 3, He's the glory of God. He is the radiance of His glory. Try to figure out what that means. He's the radiance of His glory. Right, try, to, try to grasp your hand around this. So, what's interesting, this radiance, is, it's the only time the Greek word is used in the New Testament. So, it's not like you can cross-reference, say, okay, it's used here, that's what it means. But it means just shining. It means glowing. Jesus is the glowing of God. He is the, the radiance of God. just emanates from Him. <clears throat> you know, any glimpse we see of the presence of God in the Bible, we're always struck by just how 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 bright it is and how loud it is and how flashy it is. When God appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai, it was like smoke like a furnace, shaking like an earthquake, sounds like loud trumpets. When John got a glimpse of heaven, he described the throne as flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder coming out from the throne. Paul describes God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see. Just the the glaring blindness of God. It's a little bit like when the snow falls and you're in your basement and it's snowing outside on a sunny day and you're in a dark environment and your your pupils are are dilated and uh, you begin to walk outside and all of a sudden there's just this glaring brightness. You can't even see it. That's what God is like all the time. His light is so bright. And in some sense, in some measure, Jesus radiated the same glory. He radiates. He radiated the glory of God. Now what's interesting here is I believe that when Jesus walked in the flesh, the, the human flesh veiled the radiant glory of God. It, it, it was like a, a coat that kept His shining essence inside of Him. And I say that because there was a time when the glory of Jesus actually shone through His flesh. You remember when Jesus took Peter and James and John up to the mount? We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And He was transfigured there. It says in the text, Matthew 17, 2, that His face shone like the sun and His garments became as white as light. So you look at Jesus... His, his head is becoming like the sun, just blazing glory. And, and the disciples are looking at it, can't even see Him. You know, they need to bring their sunglasses. And they didn't bring their sunglasses. But the sun, it's not even good to look at the sun with sunglasses. You need some high power filters. And that's what Jesus was. I believe that was the radiant being of Jesus shining through. Getting a glimpse of His glory. It was on the mountain that they were able to peer into His glory. And it's so wonderful that Peter didn't want to leave. Remember, he said, let's make tents here. One for Moses and Elijah and you, Jesus. We'll just stay up here. It was so attractive. It was beautiful. Now I ask you, which of the prophets ever had glory like this? I can think of one who was close. Can you think? Anyone? Kids? Anyone? Radiated glory. I know you guys can. Who? Moses. Good. Right? Remember he was on the mountain. He talked face to face with God. And then when he went down, 
what happened. His face shone. And I believe that that was the, the radiance of God that rubbed against the face of Moses. And that faded away because his was only skin deep. But the radiance of the glory of Jesus was, was internally deep. And it shone out when his flesh didn't cover it anymore. It just shows how much greater Jesus is. He's the glory of God. Fourthly, Jesus also is the nature of God. We come there in verse 3 that He is the exact representation of His nature. Again, it's difficult to understand. Exact representation. What does that mean? That Jesus who walked on the earth was the exact representation of God. Now some texts say, like the ESV says, the exact imprint of God. The NIV talks about the exact representation of His being. Of His nature. Somehow... It's difficult. Again, here's the, the Greek word, exact representation. The only time it occurs in the New Testament is right here. So it's hard to figure out exactly what it is, though it's, it's pretty clear. It's a, it's, a, it's a type. It's an impress. It's a carving. It is a resembling God in many ways. And I think that means here that Jesus was an exact copy of God. If that's not blasphemous, not a copy... And again, this, you see again, you see how mysterious it is, how difficult it is to describe how, how Jesus was when He walked. He was an exact representation. But that's why Jesus told His disciples, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Because I am the Father. I am the same as the Father. The Father and I are one. John 10, verse 30. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 He brings into flesh what is unseen. Jesus is the nature of God. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 Jesus is the nature of God. And this, by the way, is one of the most clearest texts in all the Bible for the deity of Jesus. He is, in very essence, God. In the early days of the church, there were those who doubted the deity of Jesus. They said, I don't think He was, he was God Himself. He was maybe a little God. He was an angel. Um, these people were called the Arians and they caused problems in the church. They're modern day Jehovah Witnesses. And so, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, they developed a document called the, the Nicene Creed. And this is what church has, has uh, professed to believe down through all the centuries. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, being one being with the Father. He was one being with the Father. And I think the thing we need to marvel today at is the deity of the Messiah. Our Messiah wasn't an earthly Messiah. He came from heaven itself. I think one of the battles that the Jewish people had with Jesus, the Pharisees, was figuring out how He could claim to be God, how He could claim to be the Son of God, and how it was that He was born of Mary. How can that be? And you remember the discussion He said about Psalm 110? That my, the Lord said to my Lord, right, this whole, whole issue about David, if, if He's the Son of David, how can He be my Lord above me? Because in the Jewish culture, any father, any, any um, ancestor was always above us. But all of a sudden, here was... It was progeny who was above. How could that be? And Jesus is saying, listen, it's because I'm God in the flesh. In the flesh, I'm a son of Mary, a son of David. But in essence, I am God Himself. I'm the nature of God. 
And we need to, we need to marvel here and realize that, that heaven came down. That the Messiah came from heaven. In fact, several times in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see the incarnation over in chapter 2, verse 14. In order to redeem the people, it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, the Messiah, also likewise partook of the same. Right To redeem us, He, he partook of us, though He wasn't us at first. Verse 17, He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, for the Messiah to come and redeem, He had to be a man. But our Messiah is God. The exact nature of God. And over in Hebrews chapter 10, the incarnation comes up again. It says, verse 5 of chapter 10, when He comes into the world, that is Jesus coming into the world, it's different than us. He's coming into the world. He's not being born into the world. He says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for Me. It's not the sacrifice and offering you've desired. You've desired a body for Me that I might come and do Your will. It's Jesus being incarnated. He came down from heaven to be like us. And I just say it, this is way better than any of the prophets. None of the prophets came down from heaven. It's way better than any of the priests. The priests didn't come down from heaven. And that's why one of the reasons I think it would be so tragic for any of us to turn back to something else other than Jesus. Because of the glory of our Savior. We have a better Savior than, than any of the priests or prophets could ever turn out. To turn away from Jesus is to turn away from God. Well, fifthly, Jesus is the heir of all things, creator of all things, the glory of God, the nature of God. Also, He's the sustainer of the world. We see that in the middle of verse 3. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus sustains the world. The same truth is spoken of in Colossians 1.17. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things hold together in Jesus. Not only did Jesus create the world, He also sustains the world. He keeps it coming. He's not the clockmaker who wound the clock, backed away and said, okay, how's the clock going to go now? He's the repair technician who winds the clock and watches it and then oils it a little bit and squeaks it and is intimately involved with that grandfather clock to keep it running. Regarding the universe, Jesus makes sure that gravity still works. Makes sure that the particles of mass are attracted to each other. Right? Inversely dependent upon the square of the distance between them. Right, Kerry? I think so. And uh, makes sure that electrical forces work. That like charges repel each other. And that different charges attract. And that magnetic fields operate. And then if you run a, a charged particle through a magnetic field, it's going to... He swayed away according to the, what's it, square? What's it called? The cross? The cross of the direction? I think so. Whatever. Whatever. But Jesus makes sure that all of these particles act like that. Sarsi Sproul said there's no maverick molecule in the universe because Jesus is watching over and makes sure that every molecule works right. He's upholding the power. He makes sure that strong and weak nuclear forces are still in the world so the world doesn't just explode and go apart. 
Jesus also controls the climate. I know that you mentioned that earlier, Michelle. In the, think about it. In the days of Noah, God flooded the earth. And then after Noah was saved in his household, he promised, never again will I flood the earth. Who do you think is responsible to see the flood, the water never floods the earth again? I think it's the one who holds the world together, who upholds the world. I think it's Jesus responsible for that. He upholds all things. He's in charge of the climate. Right? Like Ray and Lola, my, my, my favorite mother-in-law and father-in-law, coming from California. <laughs> I tell them that I'm their favorite oldest son-in-law. They have two sons-in-law, so I'm their favorite. And, and uh, they normally come out Christmas time. You all know that. Uh, but, but last time at Christmas time, he hit some bad weather, particularly. It was particular. So they came out here like in the fall, so they get some nice warm weather, right? <laughs> Jesus is in control of that, right? He has a purpose in it. The, also, I want you to notice here how it is that he sustains the world. He, he says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That same Word that created the world is the same Word that sustains the world. The Word of God is powerful. And Jesus doesn't have to be hands-on in the world. He just needs to keep speaking and all the particles in the universe will obey His voice. Can you imagine turning away from such a Savior? Jesus is better, so press on. Don't go back to anything else. Now the sixth characteristic of Jesus. He is also the purifier of sins. Starts a new sentence here. It says, When He had made purification of sins. That's when He sat down. We need to look at this first phrase. He made purification of sins. In other words, Jesus is the divine launderer. He is the one that washes, that makes clean. We don't need to cleanse ourselves from the filth that sin brings upon our souls. Jesus has done it all. As the hymn says, sin had left a crimson stain. And what does it say? He washes white as snow. He washes it clean. Jesus is in that business. That's the hope of of David. In Psalm 51, when he came to see a sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, he pleaded to the Lord, Psalm 51, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wasn't saying, I'm going to cleanse myself, O God. He's saying, no, God, You wash me. You cleanse me. Psalm 51, verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Saying, God, You wash me. And the great reality is what Jesus Christ did upon the cross 2,000 years ago washes all our sin away. It says He has made purification of sins. He purified the sins we see from the rest of the Bible of those who believe. So the question comes, do you believe today? Do you believe that Jesus has washed away your sins? Then have confidence in it. Have confidence that Jesus washed away your sins. Confidence that you're walking clean I mean, think about it. Why would you walk away from the one who made purification of your sins? Why would you wash, walk away from the one who has, who has taken your, your soiled conscience and has purified it and who has given you a, a right heart and standing before God? Why, why would you turn away from that? Of anything in the universe that you need, that's the one thing you need. Why turn away from that? And yet that's the danger the original readers in this book were written. They were in danger of turning back. 
I just say, what a tragedy. I say the danger, though, comes to us as well today. How about this? Do you ever try to make purification of sins by yourself? Like, for instance, you, you sinned in some way, and then in your mind you start saying, I sinned yesterday, but this morning I read my Bible. I'm okay. You're trying to purify your own sins. It doesn't work. Or you might say, hmm, I sinned, but I came to church this morning. That should help. That's not pure. That has no efficacious value to cleanse you from your sins. Well, I sinned, yes, but, but I prayed. Like your prayer washes your sins. Your prayer doesn't wash your sins. Jesus washes your sins. And you're made holy and righteous by faith in Him. We, as Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 9, I have a righteousness not found in myself, but a righteousness which is based on faith. It comes from God, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of believing. Or maybe you might say, well, I sinned, but I, I did a good deed on this side. You're trying to do Jesus' job, and it doesn't work. You know, we might not be Roman Catholics who think that you need to go to the Mass, receive the, the Eucharist and the wafer, so as to receive grace to wash away your sins. Or you've got to go to a priest and confess your sins, and then you say your Hail Marys and your Fathers, and that forgives your sins. You see how ludicrous that is? But Jesus is the one who purified us from our sins. In fact, the burden of the book of Hebrews is precisely this, that Jesus once for all made purification for sins. But you can turn over to chapter 10. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in our time of communion. But there are three verses here in chapter 10 that you yeah, just nail in your mind, right? Star them or asterisk them. And they speak about how Christ has cleansed us and purified us from our sins. Starting in 10, 10. It says, by this will. What's the will? The will of Jesus coming. Behold, I've come to do your will. The, Jesus, the, the, the will of Jesus coming and, and obediently doing everything the Father called Him to do on the cross. By this will, by what Jesus has done, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's where our sanctification comes from. The, the will of Jesus accomplished applied once for all. Verse 14. In contrast to the priest standing daily, ministering time after time. Verse 14, By one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus purified us from our sins by one offering for all time, washing it away. And verse 18, after quoting from Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant, I, I'm going to remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. God says, I'm, I'm not going to remember them anymore. This is the promise of the New Covenant. They are, they're gone away. I'm not remembering your sins he says in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin because Jesus purified His people once for all upon the cross. Listen, so don't purify your own sins because Jesus has done it. And if Jesus cleansed you, press on. Go towards the one who makes you clean. Well, He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the glory of God, the nature of God, the sustainer of the world, the purifier of sins. He's also the ruler of the world. That's how I'm summing up this phrase. After He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down 
signifying that His work was accomplished at the right hand of God. Now let me ask you, which of the prophets, or which of the priests, or which of the people ever in the Old Testament ever received this honor? Nobody. Nobody received the honor which Jesus did. You know, the disciples tried to receive this honor. You remember that? Mark chapter 10, James and John asked their mother to come up and talk to Jesus. And they said, Teacher, we want for you to do whatever we ask of you. Will you do this thing? And Jesus, not going to be suckered into that. He said, uh, What do you want? And they said, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said, That's not mine to give. It's the Father's to give. And the Father gave it to Jesus. Only Jesus received this honor. And this, by the way, is a theme through the book of Hebrews. The, the seating and establishing of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. As the ruler of the world, like for instance, it comes up in chapter 1, verse 13, to which of the angels has He ever said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And you can add there, to which person, to which prophet, to which priest, to whom did He ever say, sit at My right hand? It's only to the Son. Chapter 8, verse 1. It says the main, this is, now the main point of what I've been saying is this. Here's like, you want to say, okay, what's Hebrews about? He, he says it right here. This is the main point of what I've been saying. We have such a high priest who has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in the heavens. We have a high priest. We have Jesus who sat down at the right hand of God. Chapter 10, verse 12. The priests stand daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But here comes verse 12. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Jesus is the ruler of the world Chapter 12, verse 2. What ought we to do? We ought to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Four times in Hebrews, Psalm 110 is quoted about Jesus being high and the ruler of the world. Now, why would we run after anything different? And this is just the start. He goes on 13 chapters showing why Jesus is greater and calling us to pursue Him. Let me just finish right here. We're in Hebrews 12.2. Let's look at Hebrews 12.1. This is my exhortation to you this morning. It's a great way for us to include. Hebrews 11 speaks about all the people who by faith believed and followed on. And therefore, he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, since we have so many people who have walked by faith and have been approved by God, have pleased God, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus is better, so press on. Church family, I just encourage you to press on, not out of duty or legalistic compulsion or outside constraint, 
but press on and run to Jesus because Jesus is better. He's better. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You this morning for Your better revelation. I thank You this morning for Your better Messiah, the better person, the better position, the better work that He accomplished. And I would pray, Lord, that over the weeks and months and extending well past a year as we look at this book, I pray You'd stir our hearts in affection to Him. God, stir our hearts to run towards Him. To lay aside the sin which encumbers, but realize that He is the sovereign ruler, heir, creator, sustainer of the world, the one who's purified us from our sins. I pray that that would be the one that we find attractive and pursue and chase after. So help us in these days, O Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.